The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Um, Lord, thank you for the time to sit together and to just kind of uh, plow through this and, and learn new things. And I'm grateful for each one that is here in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yeah, um, I, when I first thought about this, I thought, all right, I understand the likelihood for the first number of times it would be most of the church members. In which case, we could learn the pattern and um, think about doing it, because the idea is you could meet one-on-one, you know, for four weeks or four times with a friend at a coffee shop. And they do the same. You could do it in, in your home uh, at, at work. I had a, a kind of a discovery Bible study for many years at my engineering job, and people came, and it was it was really good. Um, it's patterned after some material. Uh, there are two two different curriculums. One is explaining. Christianity and those exploring Christianity, they're so close to each other, both in their approach and in their name, that I have a hard time differentiating them. I wanted to go a little bit different way. So this, this approach is simplicity, four weeks, completely, for the most part, in the Gospel of Mark, so that people will, um, you know, be able to find what they need. They don't need this. They don't need my, my handout. They just need the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. So I have Bibles if you guys want them or whatever, but we're doing the ESB. Um, so um, do, you, do you want to just use your electronic Bibles or what's best? I don't okay. Hey, welcome. Pull up a chair and then make the circle progressively bigger. <laughs> So why don't you take my uh, handout, uh, Discovering Christ, and then just open up to the first page and we'll just read through this. And um, so the idea is that um, this class will be going on, God willing, at FBC all the time. Hey, um, let's pull up the chair if you would. Um, so, yeah, just open to the first page and let's look through this. Um, and then uh, at, at some point, uh, the idea would be that um, the whole church would know this is going on and would invite people to come. And then also it serves as a pattern for uh, you guys to do throughout the week with people you meet. Um, so the purpose of this course is to give people who have very little knowledge of the Bible the basic information they will need to trust Christ as their Savior. All four lessons are based almost exclusively on the Gospel of Mark though we will occasionally use additional verses from other places to supplement. The reason for this focus on Mark is simplicity. We believe that the Holy Spirit has given Mark as a sufficient basis for saving faith in Christ. So that's my conviction. Mark is enough. Uh, That's why it was written originally. You know, obviously the Holy Spirit knew that it would be gathered together with the other 65 books of the Bible to be part of the final Bible. Um, But uh, Mark, Mark stands alone also. And we want seekers to know where they can turn if they lose any guide that we give them. For example, blue sheets. Um, they won't necessarily have those, but they have the Bible, and they can look to Mark. The Gospel of Mark is chosen because uh, it's the shortest and with the simplest vocabulary and the simplest theological treatments. 
many scholars believe that Mark was written for a Roman audience, a Gentile audience. It may be true. Can't prove it either way, but it seems like, like um, that is true. So the course is intended to be very basic. We'll not go thoroughly through every part of the Gospel of Mark. That's what my you know 5,500 sermons in Mark is about in the week after week. So we'll do some more of that this morning. Um, but you know, basic. Um, so we're not going to do that. And we're not seeking comprehensive lessons in Christian theology. You will even be things missing from a basic gospel presentation. We're just going to kind of lean on what the Holy Spirit was doing through Mark and take it go as far as it goes. Um, at the end of the four weeks, there's an invitation to a person to continue studying more things. And you'd be like, all right, what will those more things be? Well, we have ideas on what those more things are, but um, we're, right now we're just doing that. So this is uh, four, four lessons. Um, week one um, will be Jesus' identity. Uh, basically on Mark 1, all right, but there'll be some stuff um, from uh, other parts of Mark. Yeah, go ahead and pull in if you wish. Okay. So, yeah, I won't uh, sit back there. Thanks. So, Jesus' identity um, as the Son of God, and we too will be Jesus and sin, understanding sin and Christ's relationship to it, basically Mark 2, but also Mark 7 and some other places. Week 3 will be Jesus' death on the cross for sin, and week four will be his resurrection from the dead, Mark 16. Those are the four weeks. Identity, sin, and Jesus' relationship, specifically his power to forgive sins. Um, week three will be Jesus' death for sin on the cross, understanding that, and then week four, his resurrection. All right, so based on, um, ex I think, explaining Christianity, I think they say that people who come to Bible studies like this who aren't used to coming to Bible studies, have certain fears, basic fears, all right? They say there are three of them, that they'll be asked to answer questions, and their ignorance will be exposed, uh, they'll be asked to pray, and they'll be asked to read aloud. So I'm not going to do that with any of you guys. However, I'm going to give opportunities for you to do two of those anyway, to read out loud if you want to, answer, you know, answer questions if you want to, but nobody's going to be singled out. I don't know how to lead the study if I don't have those two things. <laughs> Somebody has to, you know, people have to read. Other than that, it's just me talking the whole time. So, but the point is, I think compulsion, that there wouldn't, there wouldn't be any compulsion. Um, just, uh, you know, if you want to sit quietly and listen, that's fine. Um, each session is going to take an hour, I guess. Uh, 30 minutes of content, maybe a little more, uh, probably not a little less. And then um, just opportunities for questions to be asked. So, um, when you guys, uh, this is the first study, but before, do you have any questions or comments of how you could, you know, uh, this is not exactly how it's going to be because of who you guys are and who, you know, so I would open critique, I would open thoughts that you have before we venture in, if you want to just dive in the can, but any questions, comments about the anticipation of this? Does it make sense? Just a comment, Andrew, yeah. I think that this is fantastic because I know that had this opportunity to speak with this woman and she expressed interest. And I'm like, how on earth am I going to try to study the Bible with her? Where do I start? And this four weeks, I think, is going to be really phenomenal. That's great. Thanks and encourage. Anyone else? Questions, comments? Yeah, it's funny as I did a readout uh, in the other curricula. Um, you know, it's amazing the kinds of basic questions people ask. Like, you used a word that I don't understand. Uh, Oh, what is it? God? And they were all they were completely serious. It's like, oh wow, 
you know, where do you even start with a person saying, I don't know what you're talking about? So I think at that point then, my, the central conviction I had here was the sufficiency of Mark to save people's souls. That if somebody, if you had the 16 chapters of Mark and you were in a prison cell, that's all you had, and you read it, it would be enough to save your soul. That's my, my, my thought. And so if that's true, then leaning on that and just having it lead where it where lead. Say, hi, yeah, <coughs> you guys pull the chair. Our amoeba keeps getting bigger here. <laughs> Cheers for the... Alright, so my um, conception of this, uh, I don't I don't want to do role playing, I don't want you guys to act like you're not Christians, that's that would be weird. Um, but uh, I am gonna kind of proceed generally like it would be if it were room full of seekers. Does that make sense? And then you guys can stop and you know, but let's just do the study and um, so you're almost gonna be having two experiences here. One is imagining what it would be like if you were a seeker asking questions and you could raise questions and make comments, and the other is Suppose you were running this thing, if you were doing this for a neighbor or for some friends, etc., how would you do it? So um, this is just like a pilot run, trial run, and I really would like to hear anything. So let's uh, get whatever copy you have. I have a bunch of ESVs over here, um, so if you can get it, and I would say to the person that's on page 542 in this Bible, I would expect them to not come with Bibles. So I had a, hunch, a whole bunch of Bibles available. If you want to use your own, you're free to do that. Um, but definitely you'll need... Bibles. Now, I, I put all the scriptures in the handout, but my thought was I didn't want them dependent on the handout. All right? I wanted them to learn to look at the Bible and find things in the Bible. Does that make sense? But you can just do the handout if that's all you want. Okay? All right, so the first study here, study number one, is Jesus' identity, um, the Son of God. So that's our, our first study. It's four weeks, uh, and this one is just, we're just going to focus on um, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. The object of this study is to introduce people to Jesus, especially in his early ministry. This means establishing his identity as the Son of God. Central to this is looking at his authority in many spheres of life. So let me just stop and say, anybody who wants to share, when you think of the concept of authority, what does that word mean to you? Authority. Right to rule. Okay. Right to rule. Yeah. That's very good. We're going to see as we study that Jesus has the right to rule in, in all of these amazing spheres. And he's going to show a unique authority. Um, but behind it is his identity as a son of God. So let me just make some opening statements. The title of this course is Discovering Christ. Um, Jesus Christ is the center of Christianity, the person of Jesus. He is the center of Christianity. The only records of Jesus' life there are in the world are four very brief biographies in the Bible called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is one of the four. We're going to be looking at uh, the second of the four, Mark. There are three others, and they work together to give us a picture of the life of Jesus so we can understand who he is. So over the next few weeks, three weeks, to this week and three more weeks, we'll be looking at one of these, the Gospel of Mark, so you have copies of the Bible. Um, and it starts right away in Mark 1, 1. If anybody feels comfortable reading that verse, uh, I'd love for somebody to do that. I'm not anybody, but if somebody would like to read that, if not, I'll read it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
So that's how it starts, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let's, let's start to kind of define terms. The word gospel uh, in the original language that was written here means good news. So we're going to find out uh, that, that this story in Mark is good news. Um, we're going to see what good news it is that Jesus Christ came into the world. Now, as the chapter continues, um, there's this important moment in which he was baptized by another man named John the Baptist. We're not going to go into any details on that, but um, if someone would like to read Mark 1, 9-11, we can talk about that. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is really an amazing moment here. Um, like I said, we don't have to go into the details, but John the Baptist was a, a man who was um, speaking the word of God to the people at the time, and he was immersing people in water, and Jesus came and was immersed along with everybody else. And a voice came from heaven, um, and uh, everyone that, that heard it knew that that was the voice of God. And so the passage tells us that God spoke from heaven about Jesus calling him my son and that he loves him. So what does it mean to say that Jesus is the son of God? Well, the whole gospel of Mark is written to help us understand that, the idea of Jesus as the son of God, the identity of Jesus is the focus. So we're going to see that it means that Jesus is a unique person. He's special. He's unlike anyone that's ever lived. And he has a, a authority, uh, the authority of God, the Father. So now let's walk through some examples. And I want to say, if you have any questions, pause. And I mean questions that a, a lost person would ask or questions uh, that you have as somebody who would run a study like this, please feel free. I mean, or you have comments. This is a work in progress. So if you think, you know, it would be good to do actually. Yeah, go <clears throat> Opening the Bible the first time can be intimidating. It might be better just to have books of Mark. Okay, just Mark? Yeah. You can buy them. Uh, okay, all right. Anyone else? Suggestions or questions? All right. Um, by the way, just speaking to those church members, I find it interesting the things that the Holy Spirit just doesn't explain in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to find that, uh, especially with the tearing of the curtain in the temple from top to bottom. It just says it happened. It doesn't explain it at all. I find that interesting. <laughs> Now, we're going to explain it in the you know in the third week because uh, it's really important to understand it. But I just find it interesting. To some degree, Mark stands alone, and some degree it doesn't. You know, the Holy Spirit knew full well that that would have to be explained somewhere else. Yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking somebody might have a question about okay, this man Jesus came from Nazareth, he's baptized. Yeah. What about everything leading up to Jesus as a man? Right. All the all the things that happened before that moment. Why, why it's significant only to start the as Jesus the man versus why wouldn't you look at his entire life? Yeah, but uh, again, remember we have four um, of these little biographies of Jesus um, and they all give different in input or different insight. So Mark doesn't give us anything before the baptism. Not just the beginning of the gospel and then first time we meet him he's getting baptized. But you also have Matthew, and you have Luke, and you have John, and they give more information. So <clears throat> to get some of the more of the backstory, you can get a little more information from those other gospels.
and then you give us a, a few glimpses about Jesus as a, his birth and his uh, maybe a, a one little glimpse of him as a young boy. But other than that, nothing. So and basically, it begins when he was thirty years old. So it's a very good question. Any other questions or comments in whatever role you want to ask? <laughs> the questions are coming. The only real question I have about what we spoke about so far is this whole idea of, of Jesus being called a son. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I have shared the gospel a number of times, and, it, and it's often that this, the designation the son makes it seem like he's lesser than. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a very good, very good question. Um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thinking about that my whole Christian life, I, you know, I will say this: um, God was willing to run the risk of misunderstanding by using that that image. It is it is a metaphor to some degree. It's human language that explains an infinite reality beyond anything we really could fully fathom. But He's willing to use that Father Son language to help us understand. But it is it definitely runs the risk of misunderstanding. Doesn't it? Like I, I think. Um, this is more than I would say in a basic discovery Bible study, but I would say it runs the risk of kind of a biological understanding, like he was right. a biological father. I think Muslims, you know, have that kind of misunderstanding that in some way God the Father had a wife and they gave birth together to a son, or that he had an origin. There's lots of misunderstandings, for sure. But yeah, any other questions or comments about this? I was hoping you'd straighten that one out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I yeah, sure. Um, if if God loved His Son so much, how was it loving um, to have Him crucified? Not for us, like it displays love for us, but how was that a loving thing to do to His one and only beloved Son? It's a great question. It's a great question. You know, and something that we're gonna we're gonna talk about that third week, but um, you know we're going to find that God is able both to love his son and to love the world through his son. And we're going to find that sin is such a big problem that the only way he could love us eternally and have a relationship with us is through the death of his son. That's, I think your question shows what an incredible measure of God's love it is. It wasn't any easy thing for him. It's very, very good. Yeah. Could also, I mean, it says, for the joy that was set before him, yeah. like, it's kind of like with our kids, maybe not the perfect analogy, but we put them through some discomfort because we know something is better for them. Jesus went through that, and he is exalted and glorified. So yeah. maybe part of the expression of that love was, like, we'll put you through this, and the end goal will be more glorious than the, than the, uh, yeah. this is a little bit of speculation on my part. Yeah, that's great. Let me just say also, just very practically to all of you that are here this morning, please feel free to invite lost people for next week. We're definitely going to be doing Jesus in sin next week, and then the following week we're going to talk about his death and the following week his resurrection. So I'm basically putting the burden on the church to fill this class. <laughs> you know, um, that's and, I, and that's part of our overall desire that our church would be characterized by a culture of evangelism that you're just bringing people to church. And my commitment is in the sermon for a portion of the time to explain the gospel simply and clearly every week. This is to have a little more time to answer questions, and, um, but also to be a role model to church members throughout the week. So please feel free to invite people for next week. All right, let's talk about Jesus' authority in different ways. We're going to look at his authority in different ways. First is authority as a teacher.
teacher. Uh, if anyone feels free to read Mark 1, 21, 22. We went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Yeah, Jesus, one, probably the centerpiece, he would say, I think, the centerpiece of his ministry before his death was his teaching ministry. He would consider that the most important thing he did. He was a teacher of the Word of God. But his teaching was different than anything that the people had ever experienced before. Jesus spoke powerful words about God and about humanity, and his teachings were unlike anyone who ever spoke. His words were pure truth from his life. He spoke with a, a great authority. Authority. He spoke for God. Um, the words of truth. Secondly, we uh, have Jesus' authority over demons. If anyone else would like to read this, if not, I'm happy. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So I use the word demons. Um, the Gospel of Mark here, this translation uses the word unclean spirits. Unclean spirits. The Bible teaches that demons are powerful spiritual beings that are invisible and active, and they do evil things. Um, they were very active in Jesus' time, and they're still active today, but we can't see them still around us. And the Bible reveals, Mark's Gospel reveals, that Jesus had absolute authority over them, and they feared him. They did what he said to do, so he was powerful over them. Um, do you have any questions or comments about that? Can you imagine a person going through a Bible study like this, having questions about this? You could well imagine that. Do you have any questions? Once we um, hosted a, a Japanese girl, like an exchange student, and it was very difficult having this kind of conversation because there's no knowledge of what a synagogue is or what a scribe is or, or anything like that. So I guess it seems like a lot of the effectiveness of the study depends on who you're talking to and whether they have a background in this at all. If they're coming from no background, it's like you have to spend some time talking about almost like history or something. Yeah, that's a very good point, Jeff. I think. One of the hardest things is to know what you should stop and take time to answer and what you should defer for a different conversation. <coughs> a question. Why don't we keep going and then if you still have that question, not that you're trying to dodge it, but it's just a matter of the time. The Bible itself, the 66 books of the Bible, is an education, a whole life education. None of us started knowing what demons were, the synagogue, or high priests, or anything. We learn that progressively. And what order we learn things in, who knows, you know, when this happens and that and the next. So my approach in this is to just trust the language of the gospel and just keep moving ahead, imagining there was some Roman centurion that got a copy of it in some Roman city somewhere and was just reading and had the exact same questions you had. And then he just kept reading. <laughs> and at some point it's like, all right, I kind of get it. Um, I don't think any of us fully understands demons, fully understands how impactful they are or what they do. But we can read 
this, and we can imagine what that must have been. I would think they might ask if unclean spirits are still present and where their origin is from. That's a very good question. Um, I believe they are. I think I put in that that they're still active today. Mm -hmm. They didn't all leave planet Earth after Jesus was done. Um, they're still here. I think what it does, the Bible gives us, uh, it kind of pulls the veil back. Um, I won't necessarily mention this, but uh, in the passage we read on the first page, when Jesus was baptized, it says the heavens were torn open. So it's like there's this kind of curtain between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And uh, it's kind of hidden from us. We don't see it. But this gives us a kind of a glimpse behind the curtain. A little bit. So, very good question. Let's keep going. Jesus' authority over all diseases. If some of you would like to read this, uh, that would be helpful. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Well, here we're getting more information about demons, aren't we? Um, so little by little, it's like they didn't even know they existed, and now we're learning more things. But here it expend, ex extends it to, uh, to diseases, all diseases. And we're only doing part of the Gospel of Mark, but we find that Jesus encounters every disease that was known at that time, and he healed them all. There was no disease he couldn't heal. Nothing was too difficult for him to heal. Um, and his healings were 100% effective. They were effortless. He would touch somebody and they'd be immediately healed. Um, uh, instantaneously. So. It uh, shows tremendous power. And we can think of what a big uh, impact this would have been. Think of how much money people spend now, still, on getting well if they're sick. The, the treatments they're willing to go through. And we live in a, in a city of medicine, so-called. We have great research um, hospitals and um, you know companies, pharmaceutical companies, that are working on making people well. So this is a big issue for people, the, the sickness and the pain and suffering. So, any questions that you have about Jesus' healing ministry, his authority over all diseases? We can see that the, the Bible is presenting Jesus as a very unique person. I mean, the ability to heal. And you could imagine also how popular that would have made Jesus. I mean, think about that. If, if you heard that there was someone who could cure any disease immediately, effortlessly, and for free, he didn't charge anything. I mean, think what that would be like. It would be incredible. So Jesus has uh, authority over disease. Now we're going to jump out of Mark chapter 1 to another, another uh, part of Mark's gospel, but I think it just continues with this idea of Jesus' authority. If someone's willing to read Mark 4, 36, and 41. And within the crowd, they took, him with, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? 
Wow, that's an incredible encounter. Let me ask you, if you were in the boat with him, what would you think after an experience like that? And you get an individual who's asleep, he wakes up, and then speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. What would you think? I think I'd have a hard time believing my eyes. You know, it's like, what just happened? Yeah. I agree. I agree. Because I think, like you pointed out one time, the, the water immediately got still. And that, that just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. What was their reaction? If you look at the account, what was their reaction after everything got quiet? Filled with great fear. They were, why do you think they were afraid? What were they afraid of at that point? The storm's over now, right? The danger's passed. They probably don't know. Because they realize they didn't understand the scope of the power and the capability of the person next to them. Yeah. It, seemed, it seems the way it's written that they were afraid of him. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what? Would you? Yeah. Would you? I mean, if you saw somebody that had that kind of power, that could speak to the weather, to, could gather a bunch of clouds overhead, you know, have a single lightning bolt kind of strike a tree and then have the whole thing go away 10 minutes later, I'd be afraid of a person like that. <laughs> yeah, when he says that, if you're still no faith, it would be like, well, they missed. Yeah. <laughs> but remember, the whole approach of the Gospel of Mark is to prove and explain that Jesus is the Son of God. Or we could even use this title, which would be okay, God the Son. Um, he is God. Um, and he's in a human body. That's what this is written to prove. It's a completely unique moment in history. He's a unique person. All right, so let me just pause. The whole point of this, these studies is to give a sense of the amazement of the person of Jesus. I mean, that's the center of Christianity. Jesus is Christianity, and his power is everything. So Jesus has authority over nature. And then Jesus' authority over death. Um, so I'll read these two accounts. Um, this is also from uh, later in Mark's Gospel, from Mark chapter 5. So it reached across um, you know, to, to look at other aspects. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So... He, he started out, and he was en route, and he got interrupted, and some things happened. And in the intervening time, some messengers came. Uh, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, queen, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one 
should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now this is amazing. And we're talking about a dead person now at this point. You know, in our, in our world, you know, somebody, uh, a team uh, in an emergency room will work diligently to save a life until the moment that the lead physician pronounces the individual dead. What happens in the ER at that moment in terms of medical efforts? Stops. Stops, all of it. There's no point in continuing. Well, why is that? What does that tell you? What does medical science know when somebody's pronounced dead? Hopeless at this point. Brain activity, zero. Yeah, and there's nothing that they can do. They're not coming back. They're not coming back, there's nothing they can do. They were done, we're, we're stopping it. But Jesus, that's not true. It's not true, there's nothing he can do. And as a matter of fact, when the messengers came to Jairus, he thought it's over. As a matter of fact, they thought it was over. They said, why trouble the teacher anymore? What, what was their sense when they said, why trouble the teacher anymore? What, what were they feeling about the case? It's over. It's too late. The moment's passed. What was Jesus' feeling about that? Nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible. It's not over. And that's a very significant thing, isn't it? It teaches us something about death itself. Jesus likens it to sleeping. For him, it is like sleeping. He can raise dead people. As if he's waking a sleeping girl. Another thing we're seeing, okay, we saw it with the storm and the boat. We're seeing also the regular appeal to them to believe, to have faith. But then we're also seeing people's reactions to Jesus. That's also in all four Gospels. People are reacting to him. So what are some of the reactions that we see to Jesus here? There's some laughter later. Okay. And there, he says, she's not dead but sleeping, they just start laughing. They laugh. Was it a friendly, happy laugh like they're having a good time? <laughs> I think it was probably mocking. It was a mocking laugh. So there was mockery toward Jesus. Did they believe that he could do anything uh, about this dead girl? Certainly not. Um, what other reactions do we see? Like specifically after he raises her from the dead? Amazement. Amazement. So what is that? What is, what is that wonder and amazement? How, how would you describe that reaction? Why do people get amazed? I've encountered something I haven't seen before that's beautiful or attention to yeah, we're going to find in, in studying the life of Christ that Jesus is worthy of wonder and amazement. He does amazing things. We've already seen that. Drives out demons with the word. They obey him. They're afraid of him. He can heal any disease and sickness. He can talk to the weather and it obeys him. He can raise dead people. I would think all of this would be amazing if you believe that it's true. Jesus is an amazing person and it is amazing that he came to earth. It's amazing that he's the son of God. But again, we get this regular appeal to faith, to faith. So let me just ask, as we're doing this study, what does that mean to believe or to have faith? Kind of an important question because the, the accounts keep talking about it. To have faith, to believe. What does that mean to you? To trust. Okay. Something is true. Trust that reliable. something's true. It's reliable. Put your trust in it. So we're going to talk more about that over the weeks. But it's very, very important. And I, and I can tell you, I'll just say it straight out. All four Gospels are written to produce that reaction in us as readers. That we would trust Him. That we would believe in Him. That's the goal. That's the goal of our study. Yeah. In some of the encounters or conversations I've had, I think you know, this conversation about the nature of belief is mm -hmm. 
rubber hits the road. One of the points mm -hmm. for people, and I think um, a shared understanding for everyone in the conversation about what is the nature of belief. Mm -hmm. I've encountered most most folks typically. I get a classification of religious belief mm -hmm. and everything else, mm -hmm. and which they wouldn't call belief. Yeah. Um, what would be non-religious belief? I think you're right. What would that mean to you? Well, in in work, uh, at work, the conversation got into a very philosophical. What is the um, what is the nature of consciousness? Well, what is the word of consciousness? You have interesting conversations. Uh, <laughs> talking to a very senior developer on one hand and the product manager on the other, three of us in the room, and they got into some very philosophical things, and they immediately framed all religious belief over into the corner of the conversation. Yeah. Right? Because they wanted to talk in their categories, and hopefully, at some point in the future, we'll be able to get to the nature of belief and a yeah. common understanding. Just the fact that if you accept something to be true that's not an observable fact or repeatable fact, it take, it's outside of the empirical, right. then you're in the realm of belief. Yeah. You know, I found, you know, because I was an engineer for 10 years and you know, I studied science, that science itself is based on faith. And it is, you're trusting in other researchers and scientists that they did their work well and that their conclusions can be trusted and used. And on what basis do they do it? Well, it's a, a reputable periodical that published their findings. It's a peer-reviewed peer article, right? Oh, we can trust it. Are you gonna redo their experiments in the lab yourself? No, you don't have time for that. You have to believe that they did their work well and that we can kind of build on it. I'm telling you, the entire structure of science is based on that kind of faith. You know, I'm the radical empiricist, so I will prove everything. <laughs> no one has time for that. Yeah. Science is too big, knowledge is too great. And whole technologies are based on, on that kind of faith. We're trusting that this company and this individual, whatever, did their work well. I think it's going to work. I've read it. Let's go forward assuming it's true. And then they find that it is and things get based on it. Um, and that's how science works. Then we're listening to the credibility of people who are telling us new scientific discover discoveries. We trust the peer-reviewed articles. And therefore, we move ahead as though it's true. That's faith, isn't it? It's a great way to explain it. I'm sorry? That's a great way to explain it. Yeah, so for me, I'm trusting that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did their work well, and that the things they wrote about are true, historically true. And I'm basing my life on it. And I have done my whole Christian life, and I found it to be true. But it's the same approach. It's the same mentality. We can't go out ourselves and prove everything. We don't have time for that. And so when we do that, just generally, not just with scientific knowledge, but with current event knowledge, right? Political knowledge, other things. We, we're not able to be there in the room when the conversation is happening. We're trusting that the news outlets are doing a good job reporting, et cetera. So this is actually essential to the way we build knowledge. You know, it is. And it's essential to the Bible as well. We're going to trust that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John did good research, did their work well, et cetera. Now, as you said, it's different because it's outside of the norm. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that. I've never met a man that can speak to the wind and the waves. But neither have they. You get the sense that was, uh, oh, this happens all the time. No. <laughs> this is definitely unique. All right, very, very good. I think one, uh, sorry, one, one other misconception of faith is uh, that it's just positive thinking. Okay. That it doesn't matter how true it is. Yeah. As, long as, it, as long as it gives you motivation to do yeah. something, then that's good. And it, that's completely opposite. You know, if we have... Hope in this. What's what does he say? Um, we're like children. There's a term, right? It's like 
if our faith is not built on, on something solid, then we're revolving most of the pity. Exactly. Yeah, and that's 1 Corinthians 15 basically says, if, if Christ has not been raised, Christianity is worthless. Yeah. So we, and I've said this many times from the pulpit, there is no religion in the world for which history is so important as Christianity. If it's true, you've got something. If it's not, you have nothing. And so it all comes down to, is this true? Did this really happen? So it's not, that's a very good point. It's not just how it makes me feel or does it help my life. I need to know if it's true or not. And the reason is because we literally physically get sick. And we literally physically die. We've known people that have died and we never see them again. So I need to know, is there life after death? Can I be healed from all diseases? Can I live forever? Those are questions people are really asking. Not just, do I, do I feel good about living? I don't want to know, am I going to live beyond death? So those are very, very good questions. Now, most importantly of all the authorities is Jesus' authority over sin, his, his right to forgive sin. It is actually so important, we're going to spend the entire second study on it. So we're going to kind of defer that, but Jesus does have the authority to forgive sin, <coughs> Mark 2.10. We'll talk about that next week. Um, now, along with that, I want to talk about what kind of person Jesus was. It really matters how he carried himself. And what we're going to find is Jesus was a very kind man. He's the kind of person that people like to be around. He's the kind of person that children felt comfortable crawling up on his lap. <clears throat> He's not like any other great leader. Those people are not accessible. You can't get close to them. They're austere or distant from you. They're, they're just different than you. Jesus was nothing like that. He had a tremendous amount of compassion. You see it a lot. <clears throat> Sorry. But in this one occasion of someone who read Mark 1, 40 and 41. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. So the key phrase there is moved with pity. It's a very strong expression. What does that mean to you? If you look at that, that idea, moved with pity. What do you get out of that? What does it teach you about Jesus? Yeah, emotion, real emotions. And what is pity? Compassion. Compassion. <laughs> That's you seeing someone's plight and kind of feeling for them. Yeah. And I want to tell you, I really believe this is his entire reason for entering the world. I believe that he existed before he took on a human body, and he willingly came into the world as a human for a purpose. And I think it's pity or compassion that moved him to come. We were in trouble. We're going to talk over the next three weeks about the kind of trouble we were in and how he was moved with compassion to help us. But also, I will say this, he did all of this so that we would have a relationship with him. He wants a relationship with us, a love relationship with us. And if Jesus is some scary, harsh, tyrant-type person, even if he's amazingly talented, I wouldn't want a relationship with him. But because he is so kind, compassionate and loving, I actually want to know him. I want to get to know him. I want to be close to him. And so I would say behind all of Jesus' healings is this pity, this compassion. That's the kind of person he was. He's a very attractive person. Jesus was very kind, compassionate, tender-hearted king. All of his healings were done out of compassion for suffering people. Jesus genuinely cared for him. That's who he was. Now, um, finally today in our study, Jesus' authority to call us as a king. He is presented as a king, not just son of God, but he's presented as the king of what's called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. 
And so he begins his preaching ministry in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning imminent. It's right here. Repent and believe in the good news in the gospel. That's the basic call of the entire gospel of Mark. As a matter of fact, it's so important, we're going to study it every week. It's going to end all, all four of our weeks are going to end with the same. Kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. So the Gospel of Mark is unlike other things we read. You could read the histories of Julius Caesar or the histories of the American Civil War and shrug and say, so what? But the Gospels, all four of them, compel you to make a decision. You have to decide what you're going to do with what you're reading. You have to decide what you're going to do about Jesus. Will you believe or not? Will you repent and believe or not? So we're going to talk about those words, repent. What does that mean? Believe, what does that mean? But this is the basic call. And it's connected to the idea of a kingdom. The kingdom of God is near. It's imminent. It's at hand. And he's commanding you, effectively, to enter that kingdom through repentance and faith. And so that's what he's doing. Now, um, along with this, we have a sense of the practical side of it if someone's willing to read Mark 1, 16 through 18. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Okay. Well, there's a lot we could talk about there, but my, my point in kind of zeroing in on this is the idea of follow me. Follow me. <clears throat> Jesus is going somewhere. He's on a journey. He's a leader. These men were in the midst of their lives. They're in the midst of their busy occupations. Jesus uses language that connects with that, saying, you're fishermen, I'm going to teach you a new kind of fishing. You know, we can talk about what that is, but that's not really my point right now. My point is, he's the kind of leader that walks on by and says, follow me. I'm your priority. And they left their nets and followed him. I mean, it's very practical. They stopped doing physically what they were doing that day, and they followed Jesus. And so that's the call of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is effectively kind of passing by as we're in our lives, and he's calling on us to follow him. Follow him. So the point of the whole Gospel of Mark, Jesus calls people to follow him into the kingdom of God. They do this by repenting of their sins and believing the good news about him. His death on the cross that we're going to talk about in the future, and his resurrection from the dead. That means forgiveness of all sins and eternal life. So those are the three studies that are still ahead of us. So, summary, today we've seen Jesus is the Son of God with great power and great authority. We've seen different ways that he is authoritative, his teaching, his healings, authoritative over demons, authoritative over the wind and the waves and the weather, authoritative even over death. We're going to see next week authoritative to forgive sins. Um, he's the king. He's the Son of God and the king, and he's calling people into a kingdom. Uh, he claims to be God in a human body. And um, there's a need that we have to make a decision about him, to decide what we're going to do with him. So, um, if you're willing, you have homework for next week, and that is to read Mark 1 through 6. The idea is to get through the whole Gospel of Mark in three weeks, so that you will have finished by the fourth week. Um, and so that we can discuss things that you, you're going to read it, you're going to have questions, maybe you can take a notebook and write down the questions you have as you read chapter 2 or 3 or 4, something like that. And we'll begin next week 
with any questions you may have. In the Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.